Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor. And it's so good to have you guys here with us today. Uh, Let me welcome you. If this is your first time here, man, we're just so honored to have you here this morning. I I hope that you've you felt valued today, that, um, that you felt like somebody wanted you here this morning. And, uh, and let me tell you a little bit about who we are in our vision here at The Gathering. It's very simple. We believe that everybody's on a spiritual pathway, and we just want to help lead you down the pathway that we believe scriptures line out for us. That's that we might know God, find freedom, discover our purpose, and make a difference. That's all we do here. We just partner with you in every step of the process at the Gathering Church. So we're just glad you're here this morning. Well, welcome to the very beginning of, of, of kind of our, our fall kickoff here at the Gathering. We've decided that we don't care if it's 88 degrees outside. We are declaring it fall. We're going to wear flannel shirts and drink pumpkin spice lattes, and you can't stop us. Doesn't matter whether or not it feels like it's deep into the heat of summer out there. We declare this is fall. Welcome to our our brand new series. If you've been here uh, for a a, a long time, maybe uh, you you were here with us over the summer. We just did an eight-week long series called Summer at the Gathering. So if you've got ADD like I do, maybe you're grateful for a new series. You're like, oh, finally, new graphics. I can pay attention again. This is great. This is going to help me out. Man, we, we are so excited about this series and about what we get to share with you in this series. We've been working on this since last fall. Uh, we believe this is an important series and, and something that um, is really very personal for us. And so I'm excited to share with you, share the story of Daniel over the next four weeks. We'll be uh, studying his life in this series. And um, it's one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. So Let's get started with our new series, Identity, today. Uh, But first, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, and this is rhetorical, please don't answer out loud. I'll feel weird about it if you do. Um, Have you ever, uh, I I forgot because I thought my joke was funny and I tickled myself. Ever, (laughs) I'll do that. I'm pretty much the person that thinks my jokes are the funniest. I'm just going to let you know right out the bat. So if they land real softly today, on your hearts, but I'm entertained, I'm going to call it a win. Um, Have you ever become somebody that you're not because the people that you're around or the place that you're in? Have you ever become somebody you're not because of the people you're around or the place that you're in. Maybe this happens to you in funny ways. Maybe you grew up in, in Maryland or, or Michigan, but for some reason, whenever you get around somebody from Candler, you just can't help but talk with a little bit of South in your mouth, you know, and you don't know why. Or, or may, maybe this happens to you, you know, you, you get around, you, you're, you really are kind of uh, more of a, uh, a uh, uh, maybe like a I can't think of any other type of music other than country music. This is a problem for me. Maybe you're like more of an alternative music person. Does alternative music still exist? And you get in the car and somebody's cranking up some Taylor Swift and you're like old school Taylor Swift and you're like, oh yeah, I could get into this. This is who I am now. And uh, this has happened to me um, specifically when I was in college. Uh, I I went to Charleston Southern University for 1.5 years until I failed out. And uh, when I got to college, I fell in with the wrong crowd, okay? I I grew up in the Charleston area in South Carolina, and um, you could kind of say that there's kind of a type 
for a, for a young Charleston male. I wore khaki shorts and Guy Harvey t-shirts or a nice button-down Oxford, some Sperry Top Cider shoes, uh, sunglasses with reflective lenses, and a croquis. If you've ever been to Charleston, you've seen hundreds of these guys walking around. This is just kind of like the general guy from Charleston. Had a nice like hair swoop going on. I would do one of these. It looked great. And, uh, and I get into college, and I got around these guys that listen to this hardcore rock music. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the genre, this is a lot of really loud guitars, drums that have two kick pedals, and they go real fast, and then there's guys just screaming their brains out like somebody stole their parking spot. And that's just the whole genre of music. And I fell in with these guys, and, uh, and, some, and there was this girl there. Her name was Rael, and she had pink hair, and she wore these clothes, these like, if you remember emo, these like emo clothes all the time, real cool stuff. And I was just like, I've got to adjust who I am in order to win the affections of this woman, for sure. And so I, I got my hair cut, and I styled it into a real cool faux hawk. This was very cool in the early 2000s. I wore t-shirts that were black with band names on them that were like a youth size medium, you know? It's like stopped right here. (laughs) And then I I bought a pair of size four girls jeans. That's right, size four, I know, skinny legs. And and then I completed the ensemble with slip-on vans and I was ready to go. We went to all these hardcore shows, and I, honestly, it was a very dark time in my life. I've expunged the internet of all pictures, so don't go home and try to find this. It's not going to be on my Facebook, or even if you can find my old MySpace page, you won't find them. They're gone. But I did marry that girl, so I guess some good came out of it, although she would tell you that that season was a real stumbling block for her before we started dating. I think I was back in the khaki shorts by the time we started dating. Sometimes we allow our environment to shape us and change who we are. So what do we do when the culture around us starts to change and begins to challenge our very identity? Because our current culture is shifting more and more. By culture, I mean the values that we live by, the TV that we watch, the expectations that we have for one another, and the things that we believe. It's all changing. Some ways have been positive. If you look over the last 60 years in our country, you'll see that we've made some major shifts, some very good. Our ability to cross cultural divides, to to love one another a little bit better, has gotten better over the last 60 years. we got a long way to go, but it's gotten better. Uh, I can now order pizza without ever talking to anyone on the phone. This is an improvement in our culture here in America for the introvert. Uh, Some cultural shifts have been good, but some have not been. Our view of sexuality has shifted over the last 60 years. And and when I Love Lucy was on television, uh, Lucy and Desi slept in separate beds even though they were married on the show and even married in real life in order to avoid even the appearance of something inappropriate. But as time went on, those things began to change, and lines got blurrier and blurrier. And then one day, we had the real world, and Jersey Shore, Lord help us. Now our sitcoms mostly revolve around single people sleeping together before marriage. 
Our culture's definition of morality has gone from fixed to relative. Truth has become relative to your experience. Instead of there's, there's my truth and now there's your truth and we need to honor both truths except that if your truth is opposite of my truth, then I don't validate your truth. It's all become relative based off the experience we have. In the middle of it, the culture is demanding that we shift also. Everyone is called to be tolerant of one another just so long as we can agree on what we are tolerating. And Christianity, through it all, has been marginalized, taken from the mainstream of our nation's culture to the edges of society, from being defined by love and community to being synonymous with exclusivity and judgment. And so if you are or have been a Christian, when culture shifts, who will you become? If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, here's my hope for you in this series. I want you to see through the life of Daniel what is the right way for us to react when the culture that we live in begins to challenge the very ground that we stand on. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. I think this is the, a great place for you to be. Maybe you're here this morning because you've got some real questions. You're looking for belonging somewhere, community somewhere. You've got, you've got some spiritual longing that you're hoping to find answers to, but it is hard to commit to something like Christianity in a culture like this. Or maybe it's hard to reconcile what Christianity could be with people you've encountered and things you've seen. And over this series, my hope is that we'll answer some of those questions for you, that, that we'll show you that you can enter into a relationship with Jesus without becoming an outcast in your community. And so let's look at the life of Daniel. Uh, Daniel, uh, chapters 1 through 6, is going to be the focus of our next four weeks. Now, Daniel is an amazing book filled with many stories that you may have heard before if you grew up in church, in Sunday school, or if you've ever seen Veggie Tales before. It's about 60% of the Veggie Tales come from the book of Daniel. The first half of Daniel is all history. The second half of Daniel is a book of prophecy. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, the way that the Bible is organized in the Old Testament, even if you do know a lot about the Bible, sometimes people don't know this, it's not organized in chronological order. So it doesn't just kind of go from oldest to newest. It's not that way. In fact, it's organized by, by category. It was a real type A person who organized the Old Testament because it's categorized. It's books of law, and then it's books of history, books of poetry and wisdom, and then the prophets. And so Daniel is one of the prophets. Now, I think this is on purpose that a book with so much history is in the books of the prophets because what's happened before will happen again. And what we can see that happened in the life of Daniel and his friends will and is happening now and will happen again. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from him in how to live in a world that challenges who we are. So uh, here's the background. In 596 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded and conquered Jerusalem. He exiled the king and placed a new king in power who would be subject to Babylon. But a few years later, that king rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city and destroyed the walls around the city and destroyed the temple of God, brick by brick destroyed it, that was in the center of the city. 
And he took all the people that were living in Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, and he exiled them out to neighboring countries. And then anybody who was of royalty or of nobility that was living there, he took with him back to the capital city in Babylon so that he could integrate them into his culture. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of kind of conquering the whole world and creating one world society where instead of it being all all just different cultures, he wanted to put together little pieces of every culture he conquered to create one master culture. And so that is where we'll pick up the story in Daniel chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure house, put him in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. This is a word you need to be careful with around a three-year-old. Uh, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. You're thinking uh, it, this is describing your pastor, but it's not. It's about Daniel. Uh, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, let's look at their story and break this down a little bit. And here's what I want us to learn today. Just a few things about what culture can do. First, culture can change your identity. Culture can change your identity. The very first thing that Ashpenaz does is rename Daniel and his friends. Look at verse 7. It says, The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. I used to call him a bin don't go. Um, I don't know why. I shouldn't have told you that. That was silly. Changing your name is something that an owner does. This was a mark of slavery to have their names changed. Now, names in ancient Hebrew culture were something sacred. Your name declared who you are and where you were going. It declared who you belonged to and what promise was on your life. God would change people's names when he would take ownership over their life. There's a man named Jacob in the Bible. Jacob means deceiver. Jacob was always lying and deceiving and manipulating the circumstances around him until the day that God took ownership over his life and changed his name to Israel and said, your name now means a prince of God. You see, God would change people's names to put a promise of purpose on their life. But this was also what would happen when somebody would come into slavery. When you would enter into slavery, the slave owner would take your name, which signified who you are, and make it something less to remind you who you are now. This is what happened to Daniel and his friends. They had their names changed. He took this thing meant to define their identity, and he fundamentally changes it. And I believe this is one of the first things 
the enemy will do in our lives is begin to shift the names that we carry. Because if he can confuse you about who you are, then he can confuse you about who God is. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. In other words, nobody can judge me. Nobody can tell me who I am except for God. But Belteshazzar means lady, protect the king. They shook an inherent part of his identity, his gender, and the spiritual focus of his name. His identity shifts from a focus on God to a focus on man. It doesn't matter who God says you are. Now you serve the king. The enemy used this tactic then and he's using it now because if he can confuse you about who you are and who you serve, then he can confuse you about who God is. Ashpenaz had his name changed, or he changed the name of Hananiah to Shadrach. Hananiah means Yahweh, God is gracious. Shadrach means I am fearful of God. See, he changed his name from a meaning of praise to a meaning of fear. And our culture, I would say even church culture, has done this to us today. See, our relationship with God was always meant to be about praise. We're created to glorify Him. We're created to worship Him. We're created to honor Him with our life. But over time, with a, with a real goal of trying to help people, the church kept putting all these new restrictions and expectations on people. And over time, we shifted from being a people of praise to a people of fear. Instead of it being about a relationship with a father, it became about a religion with somebody that I couldn't get to. And over time, instead of our focus being where it should be on praise, it became about fear. And this has driven people away from the church because we don't want to live a life in fear. But we were never intended to live a life in fear. The enemy still uses this tactic today. Mishael's name is changed to Meshach. It means who, Mishael means who is what God is. Meshach means I am despised from confidence to cowardice, from a focus on God to a focus on me. Finally, he changes Azariah to Abednego, from God is my helper to servant of Nebo. He changes him from a son to a slave. Maybe your name has been changed. Maybe it was your circumstances. Mistakes you've made, people you've been around that have given you a label, have given you an identity, have given you a name that you didn't start with. Maybe it's something, something that you hold on to, that you let define you. Maybe instead of living like a son, you are a slave to your past, to your addiction, to the sins you don't want people to find out about, to your broken relationships, to a hunger for money and things. And when culture shifts... Who will you become? It's time to leave behind these names that you've been given and move forward in a new name from the only one who has the ability to name you. It's time to leave behind the name of your guilt and move forward with a name of redemption. It's time to leave behind the name of your sin and move forward in a name of grace. It's time to leave behind the name of your hurt and move forward with a name of healing. We've got to stop letting culture tell us who we are and start letting God tell us who we are. You see, I know who I am because I know who God says I am. You see, I know my value because I know what Jesus paid for me. 
We've got to start letting Jesus be the thermometer, be the one that tells us who we are instead of the people that we're around, the world that we're in, the hurt that we, ha- that we hold, and all these things that wait behind us that we keep keeping in front of us. We've got to stop letting the culture we live in give us a name because the only one who can name you is your owner. You cannot name something you do not own. Uh, I grew up around boats. One of my favorite things about boats is that you can name boats. How great is it to own something and you've got a big name for it on the side? I feel like this is an awesome thing in life. And so my dad had a boat while we were growing up, and it was named the Family Times. This was a great name for this boat because many Family Times were had on it. You see, it's a very clear name on the intentions for this boat, right? And so we had lots of uh, great times on the Family Times, and my dad got to name that boat whatever he wanted because he owned that boat. Now, if I go to a marina, and I'm walking around, and I see this majestic yacht, and I just think, I'm going to name it. I can't just march myself up the gangway and get on that boat and stand there and say, I hereby declare this is now the SS Munchmeister. (laughs) That is the most ridiculous name I could think of. It's really stupid. And so you can't just, (laughs) I kept cracking up when I was reading it this morning. And and so anyways, you you can't just do that and just all of a sudden now this is the Munchmeister. It won't be that. This is not, this is not your boat. And so you cannot Name it. You can't name something you don't own. Your culture, the world around you, wants to be your owner. And if you let it, it will name you to shift your ownership. Don't let your identity shift because the culture you live in is shifting. Set your identity in Jesus and let him be the one who names you. Here's the second thing culture does. It will lead you to compromise your standards. It will lead you to compromise your standards. I, I grew up in the southeast, Somerville, South Carolina. I grew up in a small town where everybody went to church. The biggest disagreements we had weren't about whether or not you went to church or were a Christian or, or about what, what God you believed in. We didn't argue about that. We argued about what denominations you were a part of whether you were a Lutheran or a Baptist. And, and we judged people based off of that. And we put parameters around people based off that. And, and honestly, people's identities would shift based off these different Christian labels. You see, it was a different world, but it was the same problem. Our standards were being compromised by the world around us. Now, it's not about whether or not it's a denominational thing. It's about what you believe. The standards that I live by as a follower of Jesus are being challenged because I'm being told that to follow Jesus is foolish or that it's exclusive or the, the, the things the Bible teaches are silly. You see, the Bible teaches us to make sec- sexuality something sacred, but our culture says it's casual. It's not a big deal. We don't, we don't need to get all up in arms about this. Our culture tells us that, that our standards need to compromise which leads our beliefs to shift. I I want you to hear this because it is hard to be a Christian in a place where Christianity is marginalized. And more and more, even now, but even more so in days to come, in order to stand on what the Bible teaches, to believe that Jesus is who he he says he is, that he's the only way for you to be rescued from the place that you're in, that you can have healing in Jesus. In order to believe those things, you're going to come up against challenges more and more, and you're going to have a decision to make. 
You can compromise your standards and shift your beliefs, or you can choose to stay firm in what you believe in, but that brings you to the real dilemma of how do you do that without ostracizing yourself from people that you genuinely care about and love in your community. And we're going to have to make that decision. And we're going to have to, we're going to, have to learn how to do that well. And so let's look at what Daniel does when he's faced with the same problem. Remember in verse 5 it says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they, they were to be trained for three years, and after they'd enter the king's service. Now here's where there's a problem. Daniel and his friends are Jewish. The, the Jewish people had very strict dietary laws that God gave them that they followed. And a, a lot of those laws kind of focused around, one, the kind of meat that you would eat. They didn't eat pork and certain other animals. Um, and then also what, where that meat came from. So if there was a cow, and this cow was sacrificed to a false god, then that meat was not something they should be eating, because it was sacrificed to an idol. And so the consumption of it was considered idol worship, and all of the king's meat was sacrificed to idols. Even the wine was sacrificed to idols. And so for Daniel and his friends to be eating this food was a real problem. It would, have, it would have meant that they were breaking five or six Jewish laws minimum. But remember, Daniel and his friends, these three guys that we've got the names of, they're not the only people who have come to Babylonia out of Jerusalem and Judah and Israel. This table is full of people who grew up the same way that he did. This table is full of people who had the same standards that he had. And they had these standards but then a big old plate of bacon dropped right in front of them, and that smell, woo! And then there's a big piece of filet mignon over here, and they didn't have forks and knives, so dudes were just grabbing it and biting chunks out of it. Oh, man. It's hard to have the right standards, the standards you want to have when what's happening around you is starting to look so good. When the people that you thought would stand firm with you are shifting their standards around you. And Daniel and his friends have a really difficult decision to make. What are they going to do? Maybe you've been in this position. You want to follow Jesus and live by what the Bible teaches and, and do things the way that, the, that, you, that you feel Jesus wants you to, but everyone around you has already decided to compromise in this area. Maybe it's the decision to live with your girlfriend or boyfriend and engage in a sexual relationship before marriage. You know, in our culture, it's crazy to do this. It's crazy not to live together before marriage. I had a buddy who would always say, why would you ever buy a car without a test drive? And I was, I was thinking, so you're saying she's a Chevrolet or a Ford? I don't know. But sex isn't all marriage is built on. It's intimacy. It's spiritual. It's physical. It's emotional at the same time. When you engage in a sexual relationship with somebody you're not married to, you create a gap in the intimacy sex was created to build and that you're going to have to heal from after you get married. You see, culture will lead you to compromise your standards in order to look more like the people around you. But when you compromise your standards, you compromise who you are. You compromise your very identity. All this compromise our culture is leading us to make is bringing us to a moment of confrontation to a moment of decision. And that's the third thing culture will do. Culture creates a confrontation. So if you make that difficult decision 
to go the opposite way, to find your identity in Jesus, to refuse to compromise, then you'll find yourself in this moment. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Culture will create a confrontation between who God says you are and who the world says you should be. Daniel was faced with this dilemma. He, he could eat the king's food and compromise who he is and what he believes, but fit in and have a full belly or find a way to stand firm without becoming an outcast. Because culture wants us to believe that if we stand up for what we believe in, and it's different from what others believe in, that you'll stand out as an outcast. But I think there's another way. Daniel, verses 9 through 17, let's finish the story and see how he does this. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. In other words, Ashpenaz says, man, I really like you, but I'm worried that if, if, if I don't make you eat what the king says you should eat, you're going to look really weak and sickly, and the king's going to kill me as a result. I had a lot of these same concerns when my sister-in-law became a, a vegan, but she's fine now. She looks great, very healthy. Um, and so he was worried about it. And it says, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Just, just test us. Just try it. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, take it out of context, a very sad verse. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Look at Daniel's approach when culture brought him a confrontation. This guy is genuinely afraid. He's bringing concerns up. And Daniel doesn't say, listen, I'm right and you're wrong, so I don't really care what happens to you. I'm not doing it. I'm staying right here and I'm not doing it. A lot of times I think what our reaction as the church has been so far when we meet with a confrontation with our culture is to come up in opposition. It's to come up against it and say, no, you're right, I'm, I'm right, you're wrong. And to, to hold up signs to let them know how wrong they are. To tell them where they're going to go if they keep going the way they're going. And saying, listen, we're going to fight this and we're going to fight it as hard as we can, tooth and nail. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel says, listen, let's just, just try a test. I care about you, Ashpenaz. I don't want your head on one of these platters. I, I, I want to keep you safe. And so how about just 10 days? Just test me. Just test me. Just try it. Just, just let me do what honors my God, and you do you. And at the end, let's just see what happens. Let's see, let's see who looks healthier. Let's see what the outcome is. He stands firm while showing care and compassion for the position that Ashpenaz is in. Just test me. Here's how to keep or find your identity in Jesus in a culture that wants to redefine you you got to stand firm, but love well. 
Stand firm, but love well. Remember who you are to him and apply that value to the people who oppose you. Remember the value you believe you have in God and apply that value to the people who believe differently than you, who think differently than you, who eat differently than you, who act differently than you. Believe instead of them being your enemies and your opposition that they're just as loved by God as you are and so treat them like they could also be a son or a daughter of the king. Daniel enters this test with humility. He says, you live your life your way and I'll just keep doing it God's way and let's just see who ends up healthier in the end. And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Don't be arrogant. Don't be judgmental. Just stand firm and love well and let your life speak for itself. Here's a couple final thoughts on this and then we'll be all done today. First is be who God says you are. Be who God says you are. Don't let something label you that doesn't have the power to label you. Don't, don't carry a name that you, you don't have to carry. We just let things name us. We, 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 we just let our shame name us. We, we let the people who don't believe what we believe name us. And instead of us standing firm and loving them well, we shift towards the name that they've given us. We become what, what they were afraid we would. Whatever labels you're carrying, I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be labeled a certain way because of who I am and what I believe. I believe the only one that can label me is my Father in heaven. See, other people, they just see your flaws, but God sees all your potential. So let God tell you who you are, not your mistakes, not your culture, not other people. Here's who God says you are, in case you don't know. Galatians 4, 7 says, You are not a slave, you are a son or a daughter of the king, and so you don't have to submit to anything but him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are a temple of the Spirit of God. Psalm 139.13 says that you're not an accident, that there's nothing, there's nothing inside of you that can't be made beautiful because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. James 15.15 15 says you are a friend of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that in Jesus, you are a new creation. Whatever you were, it doesn't matter because in Him you're made new. In 1 Peter 2.9 it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of, of Him who's called you out of the darkness and into His glorious light. That's who you are. Should I keep going? I think I will. Isaiah 62.5 says you're not forsaken or forgotten, but you are the delight of the Lord. I don't know what lies you've started to believe about your relationship with God. Maybe you believe that He's forgotten you, that He's left you where you are, that He's not coming back for you, that He doesn't hear you, that He doesn't and want you, I want you to know that's a lie from the enemy because you're not forsaken or forgotten. You are his delight. He is excited about the time that he gets to spend with you. Romans 8, 2 says you are free. 2 Peter 2, 24 says you're an heir to the promise. Romans 8, 37 says you are more than a conqueror. You're not just going to beat this thing that you're going through. You are going to conquer it and beyond because that's who God has created you to be. And in Ephesians 2, 10, in my favorite one, it says you are God's 
masterpiece. And don't ever let anybody tell you anything different. You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he prepared in advance for you to do. You're God's and he's got an assignment for you. And nobody else can tell you who you are. That's who you are. Second is this. Be a thermostat and not a thermometer. Be a thermostat and not a thermometer. we got to learn this one. Some of us are thermometers. We adjust to the temperature of wherever we are. And how many of you know sometimes that where the thermometer goes stinks? Think about it. i got kids, man. I'm telling you. When we're at church, our kids are great and our marriage is perfect and we're feeling good. But when we get in the car headed home, we're all at odds each other, fighting and screaming. When we're at work, we're whoever they need us to be. You see, a thermometer always adjusts to the temperature of its current environment. See, when we're a thermometer, we just become a little bit more like wherever we are at the moment. Maybe there's a lot of different versions of you. When you're with this group of friends, you're like them. When you're with this group of friends, you're like them. When you're at life group, you're a Christian. When you're at work, you're, you're a shark. Wherever you go, you adjust to whoever you're with. i got to tell you, it's time to stop being a thermometer and to start being a thermostat. A thermometer adjusts to the temperature of wherever it is, but a thermostat sets the temperature. A thermostat sets the temperature of whatever environment it is in. You see, I believe that if you stand firm and love well, that when you come into a room, instead of becoming like that room, over time that room is going to want to become more and more like you. we got to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you've got to decide that you're going to be who God says you are. You've got to stop believing the lies that you've got to shift, that you've got to change, and you've got to stand firm while showing compassion and care and loving for the people that you're with. And if you can do those things, you're going to know more and more how to be more like God, how to hear more from God. You're going to get more of what His will is, His good, perfect, and pleasing will. I'm telling you, you've got to learn how to be a thermostat not a thermometer, because here's what happens. Over time, when we're, when, we're, when we're doing this thing the right way, when we're loving people the way we're supposed to love people, while staying firm in who God says we are, people are going to, they're going to start to notice. And this happened to me. I was in the Coast Guard for a number of years, and every time I would start a new tour of duty in the Coast Guard with new guys, it would always be the same. They'd find out I was a Christian, and they'd want to shift me more to who they were. They'd always try to get me to, you know, they just thought it was hilarious that I didn't cuss because we were all sailors, you know. Sailors are supposed to cuss, supposed to cuss like a sailor. It's like what we did. And they thought it was hilarious that I didn't. They would just try, try, try to catch me slipping. Well, I didn't slip, you know. And then and we'd go to a bar. We'd be in a port call. And everybody, be, the only people that got bought more shots than me was the prettiest girl in the bar. And sometimes I was beating her because they were like, take the shots, red wine. Come on, join us. We're all really drunk, man. Let's do this. And I was like, you guys go ahead, man. You should see yourself. I'm not interested. And I'm just telling you, over time, it started to change. You see, I was kind of, I was kind of uh, marginalized by them at first for staying firm. But I just cared for them, man. They got real drunk, and I just drove them home. 
And I cared for them, made sure they were safe, you know. And, and they, they started doing these things, and I just said, hey, let me help you out right there. It's okay, I'm just here for you. I'm not going to do what you're doing, but I'm going to love you as good as I can from where I'm at. And over time, those same guys that were always picking on me would come to me and say, hey, listen, man, things aren't good at home. And these are military guys. They don't talk about this stuff. Look, man, my marriage is a mess, and, and I don't want to lose it. And I just look at you, man, and you just, you're always so happy, and you and your wife, man, you, got, you guys really seem like you've got it together. And I'm like, well, we got you fooled, you know. <laughs> but we got something you haven't got. We, we've got a grace in our marriage that you're missing. We've got a, we've got a little bit of a, a little piece of magic in there because we both know how broken we are and how we're made new in the blood of Jesus, and it just helps us. And I can teach you about that. And over time, people say, let me get a little piece of what you got. And they start to shift to you instead of you shifting to them. Be a thermostat, not a thermometer. The last thing is real simple. Balance, grace, and truth. In a culture that more and more often positions itself against the church, we've got to find a greater balance of grace and truth. Here's what I mean. Jesus was so full of grace and truth. He never compromised, but He was always compassionate. He loved people for who they were, but He challenged them to grow into a better version of themselves. See, in the culture that we live in, you're going to be asked to take sides. And for a long time, the church has simply taken the side of truth. But what I've learned is that truth without grace is mean. It's the Pharisees in the Gospels. It's the Christian who made you feel small because of your questions or your mistakes or just because you were different from them. And in our culture, we've overreacted to not wanting to be like that by removing the truth and just focusing on the grace. Heavy grace, light on truth, removing the Bible from Christianity. But grace without truth is meaningless because Jesus went to the cross to give us grace because of how badly we needed grace. Because the standards of God are higher than the standards we can live up to. And so Jesus decided to make a way for us to bridge the gap. But if we throw those standards out, then Jesus went to the cross for nothing. You see, grace without truth is meaningless. Without truth, we become worldly. We shift and change like our culture. But without grace, we become judgmental. We make people feel like they're less than us, which was something even the Son of God never did. I think the best example of how to go on in this world is, is to look at the way Jesus acted in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's one of my very favorite stories about Jesus that shows us the real nature of God and the nature of Jesus. You see, this is a culture that's very religious, very religious and rule-driven. And Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth. And they wanted Him to shift to their side. And so they were always trying to trap Him, to catch Him, to get Him to make a decision that would bring Him over to their side. And people do that still in this world today. It's the other way around now. But they're still trying to trap us. They're still trying to catch us. And it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him and He sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. I always wondered, what were those guys doing in the place that she was committing adultery where they were to catch her? That was a little bit fishy. I don't know. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? 
They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. Here's what Jesus does. He doesn't, in our moments of need, he doesn't ask us to come up to his level. He gets down where we're at. He doesn't ask us to rise to a standard of perfection. He says, let me meet you in this place right now. I, I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna hold you to my standard. I'm not gonna shift who I am, but I'm not gonna hold you to my standard yet. Let me just meet you where you're at in this moment. It starts to write in the sand. And they kept questioning him and it straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he stopped and wrote on the ground some more. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably because they live longer, a lot more sins, until only Jesus was left. You know what I always wondered is what was he writing in the sand there? And people have all these thoughts. And I've got my, my theory is that he, he was writing the names of the mistresses those guys had and then looking at him, he's like, Rhonda. And then the dude was like, you know? I don't know. that You can believe what you want to believe. That's what I believe. He kept writing in the sand. And then there was nobody standing there. Just Jesus and the woman. They'd all left. Every one of them, they said, I've got sin. I guess I should go. I've got sin. I guess I should go. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And through tears, she said, no one, sir. Man, I love this image. He's just on his knees. You know, this is what parents do. A good parent, when their kid is hurting and they feel broken, parents, good parents, and we're not all good all the time. The right thing to do isn't to shake your finger and say, here's what you're doing wrong. You need to be more like me. The right thing to do is to get down on one knee. Say, come here. Come here. What's wrong? Are you okay? Let me help you. Let me help you. Don't dance on top of the chair again. You will fall and get hurt. Don't do that anymore. But I'm going to hold you in this moment because you need me. Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He stood firm. He loved well. He stood firm. He loved well. Don't, don't keep on sinning. Don't do this anymore. But I'm not going to condemn you here in this place. We've got to learn the balance between grace and truth. If you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Jesus, church has never been your thing, you're checking us out, I want you to know that whatever encounters you've had so far with Christianity, with the church, if they haven't been this, then it wasn't Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what it looks like. I don't believe we should compromise our standards. I don't believe we should change who we are. I don't believe we should water down the gospel. I don't believe that. I believe the gospel is just as good today as it was then. But I do think that to be like Jesus means not to judge people, not to cast people aside, not to make people feel less than, but to get down on your knees and show them the compassion and the love that Jesus would have. We've got to stand firm and love well. I'm excited about this series and what we're going to talk about as we continue to study the life of Daniel and see the different, different decisions he had to make and the, the way that he had to respond. And I hope that we're able to learn more and more out of it what it looks like to follow Jesus in the world like the one we live in today. I hope you'll join us 
next week as we, as we continue the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, God. And Lord, I thank you for who you've said I am. Thank you for naming me. Thank you for creating an identity for me, an identity that is in you, God, an identity uh, that is forgiven, that is made new, God, that declares I am a new creation, that I'm yours, that I'm not a slave, but I'm a son, God, that I don't have to keep living in the chains of my mistakes, but I can live in the freedom of your grace. Father God, I just ask that you would just give us the opportunity to lead every single person in our, in our places of work, every person in our neighborhoods and our families who opposes who we are. Lord God, give us the opportunity to love them well. Give us the opportunity to show them who you are, to show them your compassion and your grace, to show them, hey, you go to life your way and I'll go my way and we'll just see who God blesses more in the end. Father, just give us the chance. Give us the chance to show people who you are. God, we love you, Lord. We just be glorified in our lives. We honor you. We want to be more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.